This podcast may include adult content. Welcome to Bound Off, a literary audio broadcast. In this edition, we have three stories. The Thing at the Blue Joy Dragon by Susan O'Neill, Homage by Craig Turlson, and Palo Alto by Gavin Broom. Visit our website at boundoff.com for information about our broadcast. The Thing at the Blue Joy Dragon, written and read by Susan O'Neill. Listening time, 15 minutes, 45 seconds. The Thing at the Blue Joy Dragon. I never miss a meeting, Colette. I'm there for my team. I had plenty of time. Figure lunch, an hour. I had two hours. I hate when people say it wasn't my fault. Remember I told, uh, who's it? Maria, Morella, Marvella. I, I said, don't tell me whose fault it's not, just stop it. But the thing at the Blue Joy Dragon. Geez, you know, I'm still not sure what the thing was. Anyway, I won't say it was Joe's fault. Just, I wasn't responsible for what happened to him. Now I'm responsible for Joe for two more months. Crapped on by karma. Two months, he could still be around when little Emily's born. That sucks. Big time. Joe's problem is he's clueless. He assumes. Takes everything at face value. Subtly zip over his head. Yeah, I thought it was cute back when I first met him. That flummoxed look. I put him on, he didn't get it. Well... Try living in the same apartment with it for four months. It ceases to be cute. Jeez, I think of those clueless jeans. Poor little Emily. Oh, he had his selling points back then. He was hot, not swishy like most gay guys. Played a killer banjo. (laughs) And would never bug me to marry him or fight for custody, right? The MBA was the deal maker. Little Emily would be a CEO. (laughs) Ha! She gets his drive, she'll wind up a janitor. Anyway, that was seven months ago when we met when everything looked promising, when Joe looked promising. Now he's a clueless, unemployed slob, an injured, clueless, unemployed slob. I haven't seen you in, what, six months? I just found out I was pregnant, things were going my way. Well, that was then. Oh, the thing. Okay. Last week, I found a two-hour space in my schedule, so I invited Joe to the dragon. Killer Kung Pao chicken. I picked it because it's a public place. Remember my first boss, real piece of work? She told me the cleanest way to fire somebody was in a public place, preferably a restaurant. Seriously, nobody likes to make a scene in a restaurant, no matter what you do to them. Not even if the place is practically deserted, like the dragon at two on a Wednesday. There's a dignity to eating in a restaurant. Seriously, it works. It worked with, who's it, Uh, Marvella. You might try it with that smart-ass receptionist of yours. Just kidding. Okay, granted, I wasn't firing Joe, but the principle's the same. The bonus was he loves Kung Pao. Pardon my fidgets. My tail's still sore. Anyway, there we were in the dragon at 2.10 p.m. It's going smoothly. I'm pumped. We settle it by 3. I'll be early for the meeting. The restaurant's empty by the time the waiter set our hot and sour soup down on those your good luck sign placemats. I'd laid it out why Joe had to be out of my apartment and my life by the end of the month. He actually listened. I flattered myself that maybe he got it, could see how things had to be. Then the kitchen roof caves in. Well, that's what it sounded like. You know those swinging doors where the waiter comes and goes? On the kitchen side of them was this deafening crash-smash-rattle. Our table bucked. I grabbed my belly. I mean, I was shook. Even little Emily jumped. Joe's tea sloshed on his mat. He says, 
great Jesus. For him, that's an obscenity. One hellacious argument breaks out behind the swinging doors. A man and woman, shrieking Chinese. You could have cut yourself on it. Joe says, should we do something? Do something? Jeez. Then, silence. I looked around. No smoke, no plaster dust. It wasn't the roof. Maybe a tray of dishes or a cement block hitting a full sink. Whatever. I loosened my grip on little Emily. We were safe. But... Joe was taking everything so well, and here's this grand distraction, like watching a play and the set collapses. I knew Joe. He'd seize on it like some shiny floating object. I'd lose the high ground and have to start again from square one. Jeez. I breathed deep like I learned in Mommy to be yoga. I cleared my throat. Joe's mopping his mat with his napkin. He looks up, flummoxed. I wanted to reach out and shake him. I said, now, where were we? He crumpled his napkin. I said, you understand where I'm coming from. Just then, the swinging door flies open. Out comes our waiter. He's middle-aged, big, gruff-looking for an Asian. He grabbed our bowls without looking at us. Joe said, thank you, but zip, the guy's gone. It's quiet. Joe laid his napkin on his lap, which had to leave tea stains on his wrinkled chinos. He's gotten lazy about ironing. He leans over and says, his ear is bleeding. He'd grabbed the shiny object. I checked my watch. 2.30 already. Jeez. I said, did you hear anything I said before all that? I pointed to the swinging door. He gave me his clueless look. Says, if it's about the job, I'll work at McDonald's, Ikea, anything. I said, that's not the problem. Okay, it is, but not the whole problem. It did gall me. I'd leave for work and his door is shut. He's in there playing his banjo or computer games, whatever, while I slave at my desk. And since he got downsized, his housekeeping suffered. Even his cooking slipped. Not bad, but indifferent? It used to be great. I don't buy stereotypes, but I'm living with the only gay man on earth who's not tidy. Still, that wasn't the whole problem. Anyway, he gives this tragic sigh. I told him it just isn't working. I say, look, this isn't marriage. Our living together is an accident. He looked like I'd stabbed him. He says, you said I could be part of the baby's life. I'm her father. I want to be around. That's why I agreed, etc., etc." You can be around, I say. You could move next door. That's around. Okay. So he couldn't move next door in my co-op on unemployment, but... He has friends. We met through Rebecca in accounting. She thought he walked on water. She'd take him in. Jeez, I should have used the sperm bank. But how could I tell little Emily daddy's number 846 whatever? The whole problem? Well, it's complicated. Okay, the deal breaker is Joe's not real father material. Don't give me that look. This is not Freudian hoo-ha. It's fact, based on observation. A real father is somebody a kid looks up to, without reservation. He's got what I call the four S's. He's strong, savvy, sympathetic, and serious. That's what a real father has to be. No, a sense of humor is good. I mean, serious, like take charge, dedicated, responsible. Daddy? Oh, two out of four. He was sympathetic to a fault. Serious? Uh, probably. He gave me whatever I wanted, good for me or not. Money? Here. College? 
let's mortgage the house. If I hadn't grabbed myself by the bootstraps, I'd be just another silver spoon. Whiny, no drive, no identity. That's me if I hadn't rebelled. You've got to be strong to say no and savvy to know what a kid really needs. You can't just give them the world. I mean, it's disastrous. Joe? Huh, easy. Um, soft, slack-jawed, self-absorbed, and silly. No, most fathers are not 4S. That's why there's so many screwed-up people to keep you in business. I never blame, but if I did, I'd have to blame myself for my current problem. I had the golden opportunity to find a real father. I picked Joe. Shame on me. But he presented well. When he was working, he seemed strong. As for Savvy, I figured, eh, he's gay, he must be. Honest mistake. He seems sympathetic, but lately I've recognized it as something else. Manipulation. Serious? <laughs> These days, he's aimless. Barely responsible for his own laundry. I'm not saying Joe's bad. He's just not real father material. It's disappointing. I've had boyfriends. Uh, some were strong, some savvy, some sympathetic, a few serious. But not one came with all four S's. But I never asked any one of them to father my child. Now, if Joe'd never moved in, maybe I'd be blissfully ignorant of his rank on the scale of S's. But my roommate moved to California. Joe's boyfriend dumped him, etc., etc. He needed a room. He could pay his way, so I took him in. Four months later, no job, no ambition, no prospects. On my turf, complicating my life. So, time to step up to the plate. I got us into this, I had to get us out. Which brings us back to the thing at the Blue Joy Dragon. Joe told me he wasn't trying to get a job because somebody had to watch the baby. It was good timing, he said, me a couple months to go. <laughs> Talk about manipulation? Well, I couldn't tell him about the four S's, right? So I appealed to the sex life he wasn't having. Living together cramps both our styles, wink, wink, nudge, nudge. Then comes this smash, smash, smash from the kitchen, like somebody's throwing dishes. Then that woman's voice, a mile a minute. Joe says, great sweet Jesus, somebody's getting hurt. He's off message, again. I threw down my napkin and said, let's get out of here. His mouth fell open. He said, and I quote, just bolt? I would have laughed if I hadn't had so much writing on this. I said, it's not like we don't have a reason, Joe. He says, seriously, but we're their only customers. It wouldn't be right. The door bangs open. The waiter scoots out with Kung Pao and rice, sets them down, and zip, gone before Joe could say his thanks. Joe says, Karen, his lip was all swollen. I said, it's none of our business. He said, do you think he's okay? No, Joe doesn't care. It's manipulation. He can't stand the hot seat. Grabbing the shiny floating what's-it again. I say, very nicely. I don't hear him complaining, do you? I mean, geez. I dished the food out. It was getting cold, and I had my meeting. I said, how soon can you move out? Feeny discussion. Time to close the deal. His face got red, and he stared down at his Kung Pao. I said, I had to put an ad online for a roommate. I said, I'd like to shoot for the end of the month. He says, but you really will need somebody to watch the baby. Jeez, what part of go away doesn't he understand? I said, some friend gave me the name of a great nanny. 
he says, Oh. I started eating, gave him space to consider his options. The Kung Pao was terrific. Finally, I put my chopsticks down. Mr. Savvy uses a fork. I, so I, I say, So, when? He wouldn't look at me. Childish. I half expected him to stick his fingers in his ears. Then crash, the kitchen again, a table rattler. I got up and tossed down a 20 and a 5. I told him I wanted his exit plan by tomorrow night. Chinese was flying in the kitchen. I started to go and Joe got up and it happened. The doors clanged open and the waiter ran out, just knocked the table over, dishes, food, money all over the floor, and this little gray-haired Asian woman appears, poof, like magic, in the kitchen doorway, her arm up, the waiter jumps behind us, grabs me by the shoulders, shoves me in front of him. The woman's arm snaps down. I heard Joe scream, no, like in a bad movie. Next thing, we're all on the floor in the leftover Kung Pao. Joe's on top, his arms flapping, eyes squeezed shut. He's squashing little Emily. So I pushed against his chest, felt something sticky, pulled my hand back. It was bloody. The waiter's under me, squawking in Chinese. Joe wouldn't budge, so I smacked him. Okay, it felt good to smack him. Finally, he opens his eyes, rolls off. The waiter rears up, pulls himself out, dumps me hard on my tailbone, and runs out the front door. <sighs> my butt hurt. I lifted my blouse, checked out every inch of my belly, felt around. I couldn't find where the blood was coming from, which worried me. Little Emily kicked. You have no idea how glad I was to feel that after Joe crushed her. I'm still not sure she's okay, even with the sonogram at the hospital. You just never know. So I got up. My legs were jelly. I could hardly stand. The little woman was still in the kitchen doorway. You know how people say they see red? Well, I looked at that woman and I saw red. I said, you see what you've done? I held up my bloody hand and pulled my blouse out so she could see the red stain. You almost killed me. You almost killed my baby. The kitchen door swung shut. I heard this voice, Karen? And I turned. It was Joe, still sitting on the floor, holding up this knife like a little cleaver like you'd use for cheese, holding it up like the Holy Grail, his face clueless, flummoxed. The waiter left the front door open. This your good luck sign placemat skids into Joe's lap. He really looked silly. I snatched that little cleaver out of Joe's fingers, ran to the kitchen door, shoved it with my shoulder, and it was locked. Big surprise. I thought of that homicidal witch behind it who almost killed my baby. Well, I lost it. I'm not ashamed. Sometimes you've got to lose control to get control, right? I went postal on that door, hacked, hacked it with the cleaver, but it was such a little cleaver and the dried blood made it dull, so it bounced off. I dropped it, pounded with my fists, kept pounding. The rest is a blur. <sighs> Joe claims he tried to help. He did call 911 in his cell. He claims he kept dropping it because of his shoulder. Whatever. They get us to the hospital. I tried to leave. My meeting. But they kept me, checked me out, checked the baby. You know how it goes when they get you. Anyway, the Chinese woman never did open the door. Not even when the ambulance came. But you can bet I won't let her get away with it. Joe? Oh, he's fine. Super. The visiting nurse comes, changes the bandage. He starts physical therapy next week. The problem is he's mine for two whole months. Doctor's orders. He's supposed to rest, avoid stress. Irony, right?
I don't dare kick him out. Imagine, pregnant executive throws injured gay hero out on the streets. He'd better be gone before little Emily comes. What? If he's not? Well, I guess he's the nanny. Jeez. Don't give me that look. It's not a permanent position, Colette. Susan O'Neill wrote Don't Mean Nothing, a book of short stories set in Vietnam combat hospitals. She's shopping a novel, and her blog essays are linked to susanoneal.us. This story was recorded and edited by the brilliant Kramer O'Neill, who does such things for a living. Homage, written and read by Craig Turleson. Listening time, 4 minutes, 15 seconds. Homage, by Craig Turleson. Janice found her husband standing over a curved mound on the beach. Why would you make that? she asked. It's art, Brian said. No, it isn't. It's porn. Sand porn. I prefer erotica. Janice snorted. You're so full of it. I think it's pretty good. Brian kneeled down and traced his fingers along a powdery thigh. The sand was perfect for this. Just the right consistency. He ran his hand up the sculpture's sandy belly and cupped a breast. Brian! What? It's art. It's sick. How long did you work on this? I don't know. I got here about six this morning. Just finished where you got here. You've been playing in the sand for three hours? You need to get a life. I'm on vacation. From what? Janice put her hands on her hips. Go easy now. It's been a rough few months. Brian stood and wrapped his arm around his wife's waist. Look at the face. Janice looked at him instead, frowning. Come on, just look, he urged. Janice sighed. She turned and glanced at the naked woman rising out of the sand. Her eyes widened. That looks like Debbie. My sister? She whirled around and slugged Brian in the shoulder. You've been fantasizing about my sister? Brian winced. Damn it, Janice, it's you. Look at that mole. What fucking mole? She drew back, ready to whack him another. Brian dropped to his knees before she could swing. He pointed to a small pebble above the right breast. Janice relaxed her hand. She followed Brian's finger. She pulled the V of her shirt away and stared at her own breasts. She looked up at Brian. Her expression changed immediately, like those comedians on TV that waved their hands over their face and became Richard Nixon, Ed Sullivan, or Carol Channing. That's so sweet. The corners of her mouth lifted and she beamed. Definitely Carol Channing. A hummingbird's breath later. The brow furrowed. What if someone sees? She cranked her neck up the beach, more furrowing, moving from Sullivan to Nixon. What if kids come by? A sharp intake of breath was followed by a quick step and a kick. Brian caught her naked ankle and held it firm. Janice shrieked, tipped back, wavered, and fell on her ass. He crawled over to her. He got on top of her. Brian! We're at the beach, she hissed. Shh. 
He kissed the underside of her neck. Every furrow vanished. Carol Channing reappeared. Then with another nuzzle and a well-placed nibble on the ear, Janice sighed, and a new expression emerged. Brian thought of Botticelli's Venus. He should go back to the hotel, she whispered. He pressed up against her. Or not. Brian cupped her breast. Always loved that mole. The water, she pointed. A wave pushed against the shore, releasing a blanket of foam. The foam crawled up the sandy legs, above the thighs, and dipped into the deepest part of the sculpture. Brian opened his mouth, but didn't say anything. A finger of white rose from the depths and caressed the mole. Brian started to get up. I should... Janice pulled him back down. Relax. I think she likes it. She kissed him deeply. Told you it was art. Shut up. Craig Turlson's fiction has appeared in Cezanne Scarrett, Hobart, The Laura Heard Showcase, and other literary journals. He was recently awarded an Arts Council grant to complete his short story collection, The Plate Spinner. You can visit his fiction and art website at turlson.com. Palo Alto, written and read by Gavin Broom. Listening time, 12 minutes, 15 seconds. Palo Alto, a short story by Gavin Broom. According to the maitre d', Veronica arrived at Bistro 1769 at 10.30 this morning, just as they were opening. She took a seat in the shaded patio section and spent two and a half hours working her way through a stream of Long Island iced teas and flirting with any waiter who dared to walk within reach of her outstretched arm. The maitre d' points me to her table. Elle la, he says, for some reason slipping into what I'm to assume is his native tongue. His French accent, when not speaking English, sounds strangely contrived. Regardless, I palm him a tenth for his troubles, work my way through the buzz and chatter of the lunchtime rush, and park myself at the vacant seat across from her. Ronnie, I say with absolutely no idea how she'll react. Her drunken eyes are hidden behind a pair of DKNY shades. Michael, darling, how delightful, she squeals, genuinely excited. She leans forward, hands clasped on the front legs of her chair, and takes a gurgling sip of her cocktail through a black straw. I was about to order another, she says, once the glass has been drained. Would you care to join me? I take off my own sunglasses, clamp them in the V of my shirt, and check my watch. It's a few minutes after one o'clock. I consider my schedule for the rest of the day, and come to the conclusion that I have no commitments that require me to be 100% sober. It sounds tempting. With a flail of an arm, her question becomes rhetorical, as she attracts attention of her waiter. He's about my age, not much over 20, very tan, thick black hair spiked up with gel, and at first he appears terrified at the thought of serving the table. He visibly relaxes when he sees that I'm here to serve as Ronnie's companion and as his guardian from her attention. Ah, Jerome, she purrs theatrically. I don't believe you've met my stepson. Jerome, this is Michael. Michael, this is Jerome, my waiter this afternoon. Jerome looks at me and smiles awkwardly. Over the last five years, since my father married someone 26 years his junior, it's an expression I've learned to expect from people. Every time Ronnie introduces me as her stepson, I could almost hear their brains whir into life as they estimate the age difference between us while trying to conceal their mild disgust that my father could be such a pervert. 
Not that Jerome has anything to look superior about. I'm fairly sure I went to high school with him, only back then he was called Jeff. I'll have another, Jerome, Ronnie says. Jerome nods, clips his heels together and turns to face me. And for sir? There were days, not so long ago, when I would have just given up, just taken a drink to avoid any confrontation, and happily spent the rest of the afternoon, perhaps even the rest of the day, sitting on this patio drinking Bloody Mary's, Cristal, or some expensive scotch. Out of the corner of my eye, though, I can make out the maitre d' hovering at his wooden podium and looking over at the table. I imagine an impatient expression on his face. It helps remind me why I'm here. Come on, Ronnie, I say as I get to my feet. What? Why? We've outstayed our welcome. Let's go. Michael, you're embarrassing me in front of Jerome, she hisses in a stage whisper. I throw some money down on the table to cover her tab. He'll get over it. Now come on, let's go home. Really? We can go home? I nod. She goes to start about a dozen sentences, gets nowhere, and just as I begin to expect a scene, she clumsily rises from her chair and follows me to the exit. Thank you for your visit, Mrs. Altman, the maitre d' says, as though he's speaking to a confused child. Please call again soon. Then, under his breath, he says to me, And thank you, Mr. Altman. I am sorry to have bothered you. Je suis désolé. I say nothing in reply and lead Ronnie across the street to where I parked my car. Although she's crying, she has a smile on her face. My father died two weeks ago. Some people would say he'd been fighting cancer for a year. They may be right, and there will probably come a day when I accept that as fact, but right now I'd say that cancer toyed with him for 12 months, got bored, and finished them off. The oncologists and nurses all said that he passed peacefully and wouldn't have been in any pain. I wish I could be so sure. So that left Ronnie and me to rattle around in a house that was far too big when there were three of us. Strangely, there was a period when Marsha, my elder sister, was staying at home, and for such a big house, there didn't seem to be enough places to hide from the arguments. She moved out shortly after my father and Ronnie announced their engagement. Marsha flew in from Boston the day after he died. She didn't need an excuse or a reason for her visit. She had as much right to be there as anyone, but she claimed she was coming to help with the funeral arrangements and she was doing it for Dad. As it transpired, she brought a black rain cloud in her luggage and her presence back home just gave everyone a reminder of the atmosphere that used to be in the house before she left. She hadn't forgiven Ronnie for marrying my father and I doubt she had forgiven me for not following her footsteps out of the family home. So it wasn't exactly a warm reunion. No one spoke, no one cried, no one ate. Marsha would glare at Ronnie, Ronnie would try to avoid Marsha, and I'd do my best to keep out of their way so I wouldn't be accused of misplaced loyalty. By the end of the week, Ronnie was spending more of her days at Bistro 1769, and I was wasting more and more of the family attorney's time by asking him questions I already knew the answers to, all in an attempt to appear busy. Marsha was living almost exclusively in her old bedroom. The longest conversation I had with either of them was the evening before the funeral. I was sitting by the pool, slightly drunk and agitated, as I watched the Californian sun melt into the horizon at the end of another identical day. I'm heading back east tomorrow, Marsha told me. She stood at my side, seemingly making a point of not sitting down in the lounger next to me. I thought you should know. The funeral's tomorrow, I said. It's an evening flight. Oh. I didn't know what else to say. I couldn't bring myself to change her mind because, although she was my sister, I'd seen her once and spoken to her maybe a dozen times since I was fifteen and agreed that the sooner she left, the better it would be for all of us. But still, part of me was desperate to find some way where we could all be in the same room and tolerate each other. 
Eventually, I expressed this as best I could, aware before I opened my mouth that it would fall short of the mark. Do you need a ride to the airport? Maybe. I don't know. I took a breath and was about to tell her to let me know when she'd figured it out, when she went off on a track so different and abruptly aggressive that it took me a second to weigh up exactly what she'd said. She's getting half. Did you know that? And she's getting this place. Did you know that? And what about the Hewlett Packard pension, Michael? Any idea where that's going? She was his wife. Gee, thanks for taking my side. This has nothing to do with sides, Marsha. She was his wife. It's that simple. Did you honestly expect any different? I tried to remain pragmatic and detached, focusing on the falling sun, and I stopped myself before I reminded her of how little she saw of her father towards the end, or for the preceding five years for that matter. To say any of that would have signalled the final conversation we would ever have had. She's my age, she said. She disappeared into the house before I could reply. I stayed outside until it was dark and I was sober, and I could be reasonably sure that she had gone to bed. It was 72 degrees and sunny on the day of my father's funeral. Ronnie, Marsha and I shared a limo and managed to survive the short journey without spilling a drop of blood or uttering a word. If people were expecting a grand affair, they would have been for a disappointment. Intimate is how I think people describe such things when they don't want to say small. A few aunts and uncles from San Francisco showed up, along with some business associates and a handful of unfamiliar faces who claimed to be from San Ramon. That was it. As far as I could see, no one from my mother's side was there. Ronnie cried. Marsha didn't, and nor did I. It was all a little too surreal to trigger a response from me, I guess. Marsha probably had her own reasons. The whole ceremony, which I had been dreading to the point of ulceration, passed without incident in about an hour. My father's existence, 52 years from beginning to end, was summed up in about 60 minutes by a man who didn't know him, and after it was done, we were left to get on with life as though none of it had ever happened. Twenty people came back to the house afterwards. They ate our food, drank our booze, and then they disappeared. In the end, Marsha got a ride to the airport with one of the Bay Area uncles. She said she'd keep in touch, and as I hugged her goodbye, I told her I wouldn't be holding my breath. She just smiled. I knew it was going to be weird. Although I'd known Ronnie for years and we got on well enough, my father had been the common denominator in the house. Without him, we were going to be a couple of strangers who, under any other circumstances, shouldn't even know each other, let alone live together. Ronnie must have been aware of this too, and dealt with it by basically moving into Beast Row 1769. Don't worry about me, she said, and with a smirk, as she was leaving on the afternoon, three days after the funeral. I've given the maitre d' your cell number, just in case I get out of line. Later that night, my mom calls to express her regret at not making the funeral. I could tell she was drunk. When I didn't say anything in return, she gave me a hard time for giving her a hard time. It wasn't her fault that my father had a wandering eye or was completely unreliable. It wasn't her fault that my father was absorbed in his work. It wasn't her fault that she hadn't been at home more often, etc, etc. During the call, I microwaved and ate my evening meal with the receiver clamped between my ear and shoulder and I drank a bottle and a half of red wine to stop myself from shaking. I was angry and scared and lost all at the same time and I had no idea why I was feeling everything except sad. Nothing's as it seems, were her final words to me. I'm not the enemy, Michael. I didn't know what she meant by that, but by then I was in such a rage that after I hung up, I broke the phone by punching it against a wall. Then I tore down a display case that held my father's collection of souvenir Ferrari plates and model cars, 
leaving the floor looking like plastic, ceramic and glass confetti had been scattered over it. That was when Ronnie walked into the room, swaying slightly on her feet. She asked me what had happened, and when I didn't answer, she asked what was wrong. I told her I was empty and I didn't know what to do. She stood and looked deep into my eyes for more than a minute, her stare never flinching. When a tear rolled down her cheek, she broke the silence and said she felt exactly the same. Then we hugged. I kissed her cheek, tasting her tears, and an instinct and wine moved me towards her lips, but something pulled me back, not quite touching, but close enough to feel her breath on my face. Sheepishly, I closed my eyes and hung my head so that her foreheads touched. Her hands came up to brush my face. I know, she whispered. And with that, she took my hand and led me upstairs. When I woke the next morning, Ronnie was gone. She'd left a note on the breakfast counter in the kitchen. You must hate me, she wrote. For what it's worth, I'm sorry. What happened last night was a mistake. It was disrespectful to your father, who I honestly loved more than I thought I could love anyone. I've been called a gold digger so many times by Marsha and the rest of them, and I know that's how it must look to you now. But I loved him, and I'm so broken and lonely without him. I'd give anything for you to believe me. I'll make this easy for both of us, and I'll move out. You can have the house, but it's yours anyway. I'm so sorry. For the first time since my father passed away, I cried. I read the letter countless times for the rest of the morning. I was feeling too sick to eat, but there was something missing. Something that had been there yesterday was gone today, and I was lighter because of its absence. At around noon, my cell phone rang. It was the maitre d' of Bistro 1769. Apparently, Ronnie was very drunk, upsetting staff, and he'd be very grateful if I would come over and pick her up. Of course, I said. I'll be right there. Gavin Broom lives in the Scottish countryside with his wife and his cat. He dreams of the day his writing earns him enough to buy a house at the beach. Thanks for listening to this edition of Bound Off, copyright Bound Off and the respective authors. All rights reserved. Visit our website at boundoff.com for information about our broadcasts and how to submit your stories.